in Madison right now, you have to work 94 hours a week to afford just a small two bedroom apartment. This podcast episode is brought to you by The Daily Cardinal, UW-Madison's longest running independent student newspaper. I'm Gabby Vinick. And I'm Hope Carnup, your co-host for The Student Dive, a podcast where we speak directly with UW-Madison student reporters, editors, and Wisconsinites. We talk about the most pressing issues in our campus, city, and state communities. Let's dive right in. Every semester, our student newspaper, The Daily Cardinal, focuses on one special topic and produces in-depth coverage. We are so excited to introduce our Spring 2021 Action Project, Wealth and Poverty. In this episode, we learn how inequality is taking shape in Wisconsin and affecting unhoused populations, graduate workers, and incarcerated workers. And stay tuned for our next episode when we cover stories from the arts, life and style, and science desks. The homeless population in Dane County has increased since the pandemic, but not everyone is being affected equally. Black people made up 46% of the 3,465 local residents Dane County Homeless Services assisted, despite representing only 14% of the county's total population. It is Sunday, March 28th at 11.22 a.m. I am with one of our city news reporters. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Sarah Eichsted. I'm a freshman here at Madison. And for the Action Project, I wrote a story on homelessness in Madison and how that has changed throughout the pandemic. So you reported that Dane County saw more people become homeless since the pandemic. Is that correct? Yeah, so since the pandemic has started, there's been um, more homeless people living on the streets, um, less opportunities for shelter, and then just overall more low-income families who maybe lost their job and are struggling to keep their home. So the Department of Housing and Urban Development, they reported some important statistics about the demographics of who received some help from Dane County Homeless Services. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, for sure. So there's some really surprising demographics. Um, 70% of Dane County's homeless population is men. So there's a very strong need for um, permanent men's shelter. And then additionally, there's a lot of racial disparities within the homeless community. So Black people make up 46% of the homeless community in Dane County, while only making up 14% of the total population. So some of my, the people I interviewed explained that as being due to a lot of different factors, just redlining and just overall racism within Dane County. So essentially the historic effects of racism are still playing out today and affecting the homeless population. Yeah, exactly. So tell me about the people that you spoke with, specifically people who are homeless who 
have faced financial trouble since COVID-19 started? Mm -hmm. So I talked to a couple homeless people. One of them, his name was Victor. He became homeless because of COVID. So that really had an effect on him. He just had a hard time paying his mortgage and then eventually got a notice from the bank that basically said, you have to evacuate. And so he's been out on the streets ever since. And then another person I talked to, his name was Randy. He was actually going to kind of seek help for a drug addiction and go to a rehabilitation center, but they stopped accepting people because of COVID. So once he was released from prison, he just went back on the streets when he was supposed to be getting help. What were the thoughts Um, that were coming into your mind when he first told you that? Yeah, that was really impactful to me because it just kind of showed how much people are struggling because of the pandemic. I think me and most of my friends and stuff, you know, we complain about simple things like not being able to go out to eat or something like that. But this is just, it really showed me how it affects people who are really struggling and how resources have just been cut off for people. And that's been really difficult for the homeless community, especially. And something that you also bring up is with the director of the Interagency Council on Homelessness, specifically regarding the minimum wage. So where does that come into play with your story? Yeah, so Michael Basford was talking about the minimum wage. He's the director of that committee. And he was saying that in Madison right now, you have to work 94 hours a week to afford just a small two-bedroom apartment in Madison. So raising the minimum wage would really help um, the homeless population because even if you're working a full-time job right now, you still cannot afford to live here. And so he was really stressing that raising the minimum wage would have a huge impact and really stressing that everyone should be able to afford shelter, even if you're working a minimum wage job, as long as you're working full-time, you should be able to afford housing. So something that was shocking to me personally is that prior to the pandemic, Porchlight's men's shelters would host 100 men in one room, sleeping only inches apart. What has changed now? Yeah, so now they have moved to temporary locations. So Carla Thanes, the director of Porchlight, explain that those locations are very nice in comparison. Um, Everyone has their own space. They have really nice meals catered. So it has, the pandemic has improved the conditions of the homeless shelters, but they're temporary. So they're looking for a permanent location that is hopefully going to be nicer than what they were staying in before. And so based on all of the people that you spoke with, what can you say about what the future might look like and in what ways have we seen leaders come together to help people in the community? Um, So the people I spoke with, it was actually really uplifting. They shared lots of stories of the community coming together when the pandemic hit and the homeless community really needed help. So I think there is a lot of hope for the future I think the biggest thing is getting a permanent location. I think it's funded until June. 
and they're looking to get a permanent men's shelter location in East Town Mall, I think. So I think that's the biggest thing for the future. And then just continuing to help these homeless people. And they're also on the list to get a vaccine, the ones that stay in shelters. So that is very hopeful too. Overall, what what did writing this story mean to you? Yeah, so this story was really impactful to me. I think it really opened my eyes on some of the issues that the pandemic has brought to people who are struggling. It really cleared up some of the misconceptions I had about the homeless community. I think a lot of people judge them and this really just showed that they're human just like the rest of us and they're just going through a hard time. They need help. And then another thing is Tori, Tori Mueller really stressed that everyone should if you want to help the homeless community, the first step is to look at them as human and recognize them and say hello to them as you walk on the street rather than just turning away or ignoring them like I think most people probably do. Thanks so much, Sarah. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. People who are homeless are not the only ones struggling to make ends meet. Graduate workers are also facing financial troubles. Okay, it is Saturday, March 27th. I'm here with Ellie. Ellie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, my name is Ellie Nowakowski. Um, I write for the news and sports sections. For the campus project, I wrote a story about graduate workers and how they have to pay segregated fees despite you know being university employees. And just sort of TAA's continued fight to sort of have those fees remitted and the difficulties they face because of Act 10. So tell us more about that fight that they're waging. The graduate workers have until April 2nd to pay their segregated fees. That is obviously, that date is approaching. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things they expressed to me is that they're not exactly considering just one option. They're thinking about all the different ways that they can sort of make sure these fees are remitted for this semester. And ultimately their goal is to have the fees remitted completely. They don't think that graduate workers should have to pay segregated fees whatsoever, but because of the pandemic, they've really been fighting to have them remitted this semester. And I think that they're going to just consider all of their options as that date approaches to sort of alleviate that financial stress for fellow graduate workers. And I think this topic can be a bit confusing sometimes to some of our readers or even just students in general. Can you explain the difference between segregated and mandatory fees and all that is going into this decision? Yeah. So segregated fees are $734 per semester, and then I think around $300 per summer semester. And those kinds of fees are paid by both graduate and undergraduate students. And they go to fund really important things. They fund the union, they fund um, ASM's budget, they fund like bus and transportation services, a lot of really important things. And then mandatory fees or 
international student services fees are an additional $100 per semester that international students have to pay to go to fund things that like on campus things that benefit them, if that makes sense. So it's really important to note that undergraduate and graduate students are all paying them, but it just becomes tricky when you're talking about graduate students who are also getting our graduate workers because they're also getting paid by the university. So it's sort of tricky to think about asking graduate workers to pay back a lot of their first few paychecks in these segregated fees and then international students having to pay even more. So walk me through your story. Who did you speak with and what do people have to say about this? Yeah, so I spoke with the TAA co-presidents, Miranda and Alejandra, and then also the Stewards Council co-chair, Stephen. And they actually had a lot of different things to say, but they sort of stood behind the same fundamental ideas that, you know, it's really unfair that graduate workers are being asked to pay so much of their paychecks on top of, you know, all else that's being asked of them. And so they all really stood behind that. And then, of course, had different opinions on like things like Act 10 and other things like that. But it was really interesting to hear like how strong they're, you know, the foundation of what TAA is fighting for is because they all had really a really solid understanding of their arguments and a really solid understanding of why it really isn't fair to ask graduate workers to pay segregated fees. Something that you wrote that really caught my attention was you wrote, it isn't a matter of taking away the funding and the TAA believes the monetary funds are important services. Rather, it's a matter of asking the university to find funding elsewhere. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think that one of the things they really wanted to emphasize when talking to me is they aren't arguing that things like ASM's budget and, you know, transportation, that those things should be taken away and that, you know, fun or funding should be found um, within the undergraduate population. You know, that's not what they're arguing for. So they're careful to use the term remitted because they want the university to find those funds internally, externally. I think they're super flexible about wherever it is, but they're also confident in the fact that if UW-Madison really put their mind to it, they could find these segregated fees funding elsewhere and that it's not really necessary to have graduate workers paying them. Do you want to further explain what Act 10 is? Sure. Well, so in this context, Act 10 is, it really like limits union activity. So for TAA, which is not actually a certified union, they are going to have a lot harder of a time under Act 10 getting anyone to sort of meet with them and bargain with them. So two of the really important things that Act 10 did in regards to public sector unions is that, first of all, it made it so that these unions can only bargain for wage increases. And the other thing that it did is that it made it so that every year the each union has to have a vote basically of whether or not even to be able to continue to 
be able to bargain for those wages and be able to continue as a union. And um, the vote isn't, it's not majority of people who vote, it's majority of all union members who are eligible to vote. So it makes it really hard to remain a certified union when you need 50% of your entire union to show up and vote to continue to keep you guys as a union. That's really interesting. So it seems like the overall takeaway is that the graduate workers feel they are being overworked, underpaid, which you both words that you use to describe their experience and feel that it's unfair to have to pay the segregated fees, essentially. Yeah. And it's really important to note that while they or because of Act 10, they just don't really have the power to make UW-Madison meet with them and negotiate um, for changes in wages or changes in segregated fees. So they've really had to be a little bit more creative about how they're fighting to have segregated fees remitted. But actually, um, Miranda, who I spoke to, one of the TAA co-presidents, said something really interesting, was that, which was that because of Act 10, they're almost sort of freed from classic, you know, labor organizing. And she feels that that sort of gives them the power to actually move forward towards something more radical rather than having to work under the guidelines of like classic labor organizing, which I thought was really interesting. Do you think they feel more hopeful for the future in terms of change in that case? I think it's hard to say because change is more difficult under Act 10. And at the same time, they're able to push for more radical change because of Act 10. So it's hard to say. And they're all, I think what's really cool is they have their mutual aid fund. They have all these different things. So they're really creative about how they're supporting each other with their segregated fees. But it's it's hard to say whether Act 10 makes it easier or harder to get things done. So was there anyone else that you spoke to? Yeah, well, so I spoke with the three of those people. And what was really interesting is they're not only, you know, graduate student leaders, but they're also people who are experiencing these hardships that they're fighting against. And so it was really unique to be able to hear from them about their own experiences. Um, One of the things that Miranda and I talked about was that it's really hard to, for, for the administration to sort of conceptualize that, you know, $700 might be a big deal, but to her, it is a really big deal. And she, you know, talked about how she wishes she could go visit her family at home and that would be able to pay for that trip back. And she can't do that because segregated views are taking that away from her. And then the other thing that we talked about is just how the pandemic has made this so much worse. And I think that's the case for so many people, not just graduate workers, is that the pandemic has made sort of paying your bills and things like that, like a lot more difficult. And I just think that one of the things that they really wanted to emphasize to me is that they're not just concerned with this semester. This is something that they want. They want to be able to remit segregated fees altogether, but that it's especially important this semester, given that we're in a pandemic and it's harder for them. 
the whole story gave me a lot more appreciation for TAs because I knew that, you know, they worked really hard and they did a lot for us. And I also knew that they didn't necessarily get paid what they deserved, but I didn't realize that they were being asked to pay back so much of their paychecks in segregated fees and how difficult it makes that to pay their bills. So it definitely gave me a deeper appreciation for them. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. In late 2020, social media posts and petitions called for an end to state and UW system contracts with the state's prison industry. The branch produces furniture and other materials for the university. Incarcerated workers get paid less than $1 per hour in most jobs, a fraction of the state minimum wage. Associate News Editor Nathan Denzine talks about his Action Project story and why a wage increase is unlikely. I am here with Nathan Denzine, who contributed a piece to our Action Project about the situation of labor in prisons. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me, Hope. So how did you get started on this article? Um, I noticed at the top of the piece, you sort of talked about petitions and things on social media. Did that sort of get some inspiration going? Yeah, so kind of in late December of 2020, there were a whole bunch of tweets that were kind of going around and it, it raised an issue that I had never even heard about before. And that's that the state government and the UW system are contracted to purchase their furniture pretty much solely through the state's prison industry system, which kind of shocked me and a lot of other people because prison labor is is essentially legalized slavery. And you never want to hear that your school or your government is, you know, buying through these sites. So there were a whole bunch of petitions that went up and there was a lot of social media attention. There was a lot of buzz. Um, There's still some buzz. There's legislators like um, Francesca Hong, who still tweets about it sometimes. So it's still getting this attention, but but all this attention was going to severing the ties between the prison industry and the state government or the UW system. And I kind of wanted to take a look at maybe not the issue of ending the, the, the system of prison industries, but maybe how to improve it in the meantime while we wait for the, the big systemic change of ending prison labor comes around. A lot of your article also focuses on wages. Can you explain what those wages are like, how much prisoners are getting paid? Yeah, so the the highest starting pay that you can get from any inmate in a state prison is $1.22. And then that can go down to 97 cents for some jobs. And then when you're not in the, the state's um, kind of best industry and you're just working in the prisons themselves, it can be as little as five cents an hour or it can be as much as 40, but it's generally you're working for, for cents on the hour. And if you get really lucky, you get one of those jobs that start at say $1.22 an hour, but even $1.22 an hour is a seventh of what our state's already low minimum wages. So these guys aren't really getting paid that much. You explain the contracts that the state and the UW system have with Badger State Industries and what products does UW receive 
specifically? Yeah, so the Badger State Industries is in the umbrella program of the Wisconsin State or the Wisconsin Department of Corrections Bureau of Correctional Enterprises. And so, so that's the BCE, the Bureau of Correctional Enterprises. They are the ones that have kind of the, the better jobs, the $1.22 an hour or the $0.97 cents an hour. They have the nice jobs. So one, they, they have three wings. There's um, agriculture, industry, and then there's, there's like a, a web, there's like a tech something too. But we're, we're working with the industries program here. So both the UW system and the state government have contracts with the industry program under the BCE. And it's basically just to buy furniture. So they both have contracts that pretty explicitly say, if you need any piece of furniture, you have to go through the BSI unless you check through them, uh, you double check, they can't do what you need, you can't find what you need, and, and you get like a written permission slip basically to go and buy um, from a different industry somewhere else. But other than that, any of the, the chairs, the tables, I mean, the doors, anything that is manufactured that is considered furniture, like even door handles, that's all made by, by prison labor. Do you remember when that started and how long it's been sort of contributing to UW's infrastructure? Um, so the state prison industries program was established way back in 1913. Um, and then uh, the BCE is, is kind of just the newest iteration um, of that, that really old law, basically, that's, that's been enshrined in state constitution. Um, I don't know exactly how long they've been around for. But this is essentially a, a hundred plus year old um, business that they're running here. As far as UW and state contracts, the contract with the state has been around as long as um, this has been established. I'm not positive how long they have been contracted by the university, but I know that it's been long enough that everything that we as students would be sitting on would have been made by prisoners. So. I mean, at least 40, 50 years. In your article, you also go into how prisoners' financial situations are shaped by other circumstances. Can you explain how families' ability to send money also contributes to their financial standing? Yeah, so prisoners are working for a whole lot of different things, and they need their money for a whole bunch of different things. The most important is is Prison provides you with the, the basic needs that any human could have. But like, that's just not enough to live a, a happy, healthy life. Or I mean, as much as you can in prison. So what they have in prisons basically are little like 7-Eleven bodega type convenience stores. But those stores still charge the same amount for like an Oreo cookie or a bottle of like different shampoo or whatever it is that, that you or I would get charged. So these inmates are making a seventh of minimum wage and they're still paying the same rates for their comfort items, anything that can make their you know, lives any better. They're paying that same amount. So that gets really expensive and it can fall on family members from outside sending in money to, to help them kind of live a life that isn't, I mean, just, awful. So it can really fall on, on families paying in. And then the other thing that happens is if there are outstanding court fees, 
if there are child support fees, if there is anything that, that you owe the state or anybody else money for, if, there, if you work or if you get a gift or if you get any sort of money, the state is going to take percentages basically of that money and, and pay off your outstanding debts. Now, inmates aren't upset because obviously you have to pay your outstanding debts, but when you're making so little, it's, it's gonna fall almost completely to your family to try to help you uphold those obligations. Are wages likely to increase anytime soon? Are there political obstacles to getting those wages up? So there, according to Professor Adam Stevenson, who is the director of the Remington Center at UW-Madison, he works um, with a lot of inmates, um, in a whole bunch of different ways and students, he, he leads students with clinical trials. Anyway, he told me that he doesn't see a change happening in the wage anytime soon. The reason being, these industries actually run at a major financial loss every year. ECE takes a million dollar hit every year, basically, just to kind of run these programs to make sure, you know, that they have the infrastructure to transport inmates wherever and supervision they lose a lot of money on this. So it's not like they're selling the, the furniture to the state or um, to the university and creating these huge profits and doing whatever with them. There is, there is no money. So a raise in wage would have to be just a direct financial stimulus. In order to, I mean, in Wisconsin, there are 19,000 um, people in state prisons right now. Almost all of them are working or maybe 75% of them are working. That's a massive financial stimulus to say that we're going to increase up to, to 20 times what they're being paid now per hour. That, that's a huge check that would have to be written to state prisons. And I don't think that anybody wants that. I don't think anybody on the right or the left would want that. So it's really going to come down to a smaller state with a smaller prison population. Maybe they're a little bit wealthier it's going to be down to them to start making some of these terms or creating some of these changes and making them a, a national, I guess, ideal, because it's just not possible right now. Long-term, I mean, emptying prisons would help to, to increase wages and, and just a whole other changes in the judicial system would have to happen to really ra raise these wages. But right now, because of the huge check that would have to be written to prisons, it's very unlikely. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story? So there are already a number of organizations that are in Wisconsin who help fight for inmates' rights, who aren't currently actively fighting for a minimum wage increase, but through their other fights may eventually pick it up. There's Expo Wisconsin and Wisdom Wisconsin, and they both are, are ex-convict-led interest groups that fight for the interest of prisoners and ex-prisoners uh, throughout the state. So if you're interested in change or helping become a part of change, either of those organizations have information up on their websites that you can check out. And you can read Nathan's full story on dailycardinal.com. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking about your story. Awesome. Thanks so much.
Thanks so much for listening to The Student Dive, brought to you by The Daily Cardinal. Make sure to head to dailycardinal.com for more stories and follow us on Twitter at Daily Cardinal for the latest news.